Let's open our Bibles this morning, where Paul read for us earlier, Luke chapter 10, as we make our way through to the Gospels, simply entitled this this morning, The Good Samaritan. And uh, before we can actually get into our text, it's um, important to have uh, a historical background on how the Samaritans came to be, how the land of Samaria in Jesus' time was unique. And to do that, probably a good place to start is by, I'm going to put up on the screen a map of Samaria and have you turn to Luke chapter 9, and uh, which is just a chapter before. And we're going to see in verse 51 through 56, the general attitude of the Samaritans towards the Jewish people. Luke 9, verse 51. Now, came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, set messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you don't know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And then they went on to another village. Now I point this out. Um, James and John were called sons of thunder. It could be they had a short wick and a quick temper, but I actually think it comes from this verse here. Sons of thunder calling down fire and uh, literally asking the Lord, let's just wipe these guys out. If they don't want anything to do with us, take them out, Lord. And the Lord rebukes him and said, you guys don't know what you're talking about. I didn't come to kill, I came to save. But nonetheless, James and John got tagged with the nickname Sons of Thunder. It also shows an animosity. If you look at the map, Samaria would have been, what I want to point out now, and I'll allude to it later. It's hard to see, but uh, we're going to be turning to 1 Kings shortly and referring to a place called Mount Gerizim, which is in Samaria, and I will be alluding to that later. But in order for the parable of the Good Samaritan to really make sense to us, we have to have the history. So with that being said, I'm gonna ask you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 12, Without reading the whole thing, I'll give you a a synopsis of um, what uh, chapter 12 is about. Up till this time, of course, Israel had three kings. They had Saul for the first king, and then David, and then Solomon. Uh, The last couple verses of chapter 11 of 1 Kings talks about the death of Solomon. He was buried in the city of David, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. So in the first five verses, we're also told about a man named Jeroboam, 
the son of Nebat. Uh, he was in Egypt, for he had held, fled from the presence of King Solomon. So he's going to become a prominent player in the division of Israel. So up to this time, Saul, David, and Solomon, all one nation. And they dwelt under one king. Now Rehoboam comes back, but so does Jeroboam now that Solomon is dead. So what he does, Rehoboam, is he calls for the leaders. Big shoes to fill. Solomon, the most glorious of the kings. Um, Probably not the best known. I think David would have been the best known, but his son Solomon, wisest man who ever lived outside of the Lord Jesus. And um, he realizes that uh, he is now in his father's place, so he seeks advice. In verses six and seven, we read that Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon where, while he was he still lived, and he said, how do you advise me to answer the people? Well, the Bible says there's safety in a multitude of counsel. So he goes to the older men, um, and he asks them, what do you think? And they spoke to him saying, well, if you'll be a servant to these people today and serve them, answer them and speak good words to them, then they'll be your servants forever. However, he grew up with his buddies, and their mentality was completely different from the wisdom of the older men. We read it in verse seven. But he rejected the counsel which the elders gave him and consulted the young men who grew up with him who stood before him. And he says, Guys, what counsel do you give? How should we answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, lighten the yoke which your fathers had put on us? Now, without reading all of this, their counsel was basically, if you think Solomon was tough, you haven't seen nothing yet. If you go down to verse 13, he told them to go away for three days and come back. And he'd have an answer for them of how he's going to deal with the people. And he decided to go with the counsel of the young men, and this was their counsel. Verse 13. Then the king answered the people, roughly rejected the counsel which the elders had given him, and he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young man, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastened you with whips. I will chasten you with scourges. So the king did not listen to the people for the turn of affairs was from the Lord that he might fulfill his word which the Lord had spoken by Agi, the Shilohite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Um, when, when Jeroboam left, the Lord told him that he would actually be coming back and reigning. As a result of this, um, there was, when the people heard it, uh, their attitude in verse 16, what portion have we with David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now, see your own house, David. So we have a split. And we have Jeroboam, 
who now has returned. And in verse 20, it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they sent for him and called him to the congregation and made him king over all Israel. There was none who followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. So here we have the division. We have Rehoboam in the south, and um, he is over Judah and Benjamin. But the other 10 tribes, because basically Rehoboam said, you think you had it tough before? We haven't seen nothing yet. I'm coming down hard. So now they asked Jeroboam to be king. So now we have what is called the 10 northern tribes. Now, over the years, uh, the 10 northern tribes either had either 19 or 20. I always get it confused. But they did not have one good king. Without exception, it says of the 10 tribes of the north that they did evil in the sight of the Lord after the sins of their father, Jeroboam. And so what were the sins of Jeroboam? Well, Jeroboam has a problem because if you're Jewish, the only place you can worship is in Jerusalem at the temple. So his problem is how do I get the people to stay with me and not go back down to Jerusalem? And so what he did, let's go down to um, verse 25, um, Jeroboam built Shechem and um, he also, 28, the king took counsel and he made two calves of gold and said to the people, you know, it's too much for you guys to go down to Jerusalem. Here are your gods. Now we just stop for a second and think of the irony, <laughs> the irony of this two golden calves. I mean, there's gotta be people in the crowd going, duh, here, wasn't our whole problem of 40 years in the wilderness worshiping this golden image, and now what are they back doing? Making golden cows. I'm gonna put up another map at this time. I'm gonna show you where they placed these golden images. Verse 29 says, one was in Bethel, and the other one was in Dan. Now Bethel would have been around in an area of Samaria, but Dan is part of the tribe of Naphtali, way, way, way up on top. So he had two of them. Um, matter of fact, when we go to Israel, I didn't share this during the first service. Um, there's a nature reserve there, absolutely gorgeous, that we walk through. And... Um, um, it's the city of, of Dan. And what they have discovered within the last hundred years is what it talks about this, um, this uh, golden calf and the temple where they worshiped. At the end of our walk, I make sure I pull the guide aside. I said, now listen, I don't want you talking about anything about what is at the end of our, our walk through the nature reserve. Because where it ends up is this very spot. Talk about the Bible coming alive. And I say, okay, everybody sit down now. There's these steps there. What they don't realize is that they're sitting on the very steps that they would have walked up to to worship this golden calf. 
It's right there. And there's nothing I enjoy more giving a Bible study. And I don't tell them until I'm halfway through the Bible study where they're actually sitting. And they're looking at this altar in front of them and giving this Bible study. And I say, oh, by the way, uh, where you're sitting right now, this is an A spot. This happened right here all those years ago. So they found the one in Dan. And uh, not only that, but only a Levite could be a priest. Well, that didn't bother Jeroboam. If you read in verse 31, um, he made shrines for the high places and made priests from every class of people who were not the sons of Levi. Now, all the Israelis had land given to them except the Levites. Their portion was to serve the Lord. But he had no respect for that. And so anybody could be a priest. And as a result, um, we find as time goes on, that this goes on year after year after year. And God finally judges them for their sins. Just as the Lord used King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon during the time of Daniel to judge um, Israel, Before this, several hundred years before, we have uh, the king of Assyria, uh, Salamanzer the fifth. He invades, this is God's instrument of judgment. He invades the 10 northern tribes. In 722 BC, Syria invaded Israel and captured the 10 tribes. Uh, Then they sent back Syrians to intermarry with the Jews were still there, Uh, their children were half Jewish and half Syrian, and that's where we get the word Samaritans. What is a Samaritan? Well, he's half Jewish and half Syrians, half-breeds, and the Jews would not allow them to worship in Jerusalem. As a result, they developed their own worship on Mount Gerizim. Remember I told you, remember Mount Gerizim? Because that was to a a Samaritan where they worshiped. And this is what they taught. They couldn't go to Jerusalem. They taught that the Garden of Eden was on Mount Gerizim. They taught that Noah's Ark came to rest on Mount Gerizim. They said that Abraham offered Isaac, you guessed it, on Mount Gerizim. Can you see why there would be no dealings between the Jews and the Samaritans? This was heresy. And yet they had no choice. So basically when we read, when we read back in in Luke 10, let's go back there now. And um, the reason that the Lord was rejected in Samaria is simply because they had no really dealings with him. Okay, that's the history. Now you know um, why the Jews and the Samaritans really had no dealings with themselves. Let's read um, our text, chapter 10, verses 25 through 28. The lawyer. It says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written of the law? What is your reading of it? 
And he answered and said, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered rightly, do this and you will live. Now, the parable of the good Samaritan came out as a answer to a question to this lawyer about eternal life. It was an honest question, but what it, but was it a good question and a stock question? Now, a certain lawyer asked the question, but he was not a lawyer in the sense that we would think of uh, lawyers today. I heard a story about lawyers in our judicial system. Uh, two lawyers, they go to court, it was a difficult case. There was a great deal of controversy. And the court actually opened and lawyer number one jumped up and called the other lawyer, you're a liar. And that caused the second lawyer to jump up and retaliate and called the first lawyer a thief. Uh, the judge threw down his gavel for silence. He says, well, now that the lawyers have identified themselves... We'll begin the case. What's your point? The point is that the lawyer here in this parable is not part of what we would think as a lawyer today. Rather, he was an interpreter of the Mosaic law. In that sense, he was a lawyer. Now, the question was, um, how do you inherit eternal life? And basically, he lays out the 10 Commandments to love, uh, I mean, uh, the, the greatest commandment, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus turns the table on this guy and he answers his question with a question by saying, well, what do you think? How, how, do, you, how do you interpret this? And then we read um, in verse 26, what is written in the law and what is your rendering of it? And the Lord says, okay, you do all, do all that. Do all those things and then um, you will live. Well, that sort of contradicts the teaching of the New Testament. So we gotta stop with verse 26 and notice, I think, a little sarcasm. Um, a little barb here to this guy to make him think a little bit. Notice that the Lord said, you have answered right. Remember that this took place before Jesus died on the cross. Does it mean a man can be saved by keeping the law? Yes, but let's follow through on this. It's not the hearing of the law, but it's the doer of the law that are justified. And if you can keep it, And I have to remind you that God would contradict himself because in Galatians, if you're taking notes, this is Galatians 2, verse 16, which says, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. In Romans 8, if you're taking notes, verse three through four, for the law, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, 
that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Basically, it's telling us the reason the law came, it was a tutor. It was a schoolmaster, we're told later on in the epistles. In other words, it shows us as we look at it that there's no way that we could possibly fulfill it. Good place for an amen. Amen. Paul Paul wrestled with this. He said, the things that I wanna do, I don't do. The things I should do, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Now, that should have been the attitude of this guy here. But notice it says he wanted to justify himself. And so if he would have been honest with the question in the first place, it would have went something like this. Um, Master, I've sincerely tried to love God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind, and my neighbor as myself, but I can't do it. I've miserably failed. So how can I inherit eternal life? But instead of being honest, he opted out this evasive method and said, and who is my neighbor? Sort of switching it here. And the Lord gave him an answer to this question, and it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. It is a simple story, but a marvelous one. Now, here, when you read about the religious leaders, there was always animosity, and I'll point out a scripture just a little bit, how much they hated the Samaritans for the audacity to say that Mount Gerizim is the place you worship and clearly taking the scriptures and twisting them to fit, just like a lot of things that are happening today, what they want. That's one of the big things that we see happening in the church today. What do you want to see? Well, you just twist the scriptures around and make them say what you want. Oh, yeah, Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Gerizim. Well, that's what they believe, but it's not biblical. Good place for an amen. There's a lot of stuff that's floating around out there that people are taking as, this is factual. No, it's not. It's what you made up, and you're just rationalizing it by saying that it's biblical. The Jews, on the other hand, knew clear, clearly well where Noah's ark landed. They know where Abraham was offered, and so on and so forth. So that was heresy. And therefore, there was no dealings um, between them. On the other hand, the Lord always speaks of a Samaritan in the most positive of terms. Case in point, the parable of the good Samaritan. Before I take you there, turn to John chapter four. John chapter four, one of my favorite stories, and I'm not gonna go through all of this because it's a lengthy chapter. I'll be coming back to it as we close our study. But the, the normal route, if you were traveling from the Galilee, would have been to have taken, and you can still see it on this map here, you see the Sea of Galilee, the River Jordan, and uh, down towards the Dead Sea, where it gets to Jericho. Now, they would take that route, not necessarily because it was the shortest, it would have been shorter to go through Samaria, but they wouldn't go through Samaria. They would walk around it and they would go down what we call the Jordan River Valley. 
But in John 4, we read that um, he's, he left Judah and departed again to the Galilee. But in verse 4, instead of taking the route, he goes north and he says, we need to go through Samaria. And it, what I want, want you to see here, he says, we need to. In other words, there was a purpose for him going through Samaria. So he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sakar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the mountain. Now here again we'll pick up on the animosity. The woman of Samaria said to him, how is this that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For a Jew have no dealings with the Samaritans. What's going on? We don't talk. We don't get along. What are you asking water from me for? Well, the Lord is on this mission. Um, When we read in John, and I like to say this often because that's how we learn, through repetition, without exception, every time Jesus has a one-on-one, he always tells that person something about themselves that nobody else knows. And this is a classic right here. So she, being a Samaritan, starts out on a Samaritan's foot. What are you talking to me for? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You you know we don't get along. But Jesus keeps the conversation going. Well, he says, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, give me a drink of water, you would have asked him and he would have given you some living water. And the woman said to him, I'm surprised she answered back, but she did. But he had her curiosity she said sir you have nothing to draw with the well is deep where are you going to get this living water are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock and Jesus answered her well whoever drinks of this water they're going to get thirsty again but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst but the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Well, she had gone from saying, I don't want nothing to do with you, to saying, sir, give me some of this water that I may not thirst. Okay, what is, to me, John chapter four is probably one of the best examples on how to witness to people Listen, the scriptures. Isn't it true that when you're hanging out with somebody maybe you don't know and a conversation gets going, don't you wonder in the back of your head that maybe we can twist this conversation around a little bit and I can bring the Lord into the conversation. And most people, most of them I would say, usually are already on guard if they're not born again, and if they're not Christians, they're just waiting for somebody to say something so that they can slam that door shut really quick. It's the rule at the Thanksgiving table for the saved and the unsaved. 
We don't talk about politics, and we don't talk about religion. Because <laughs> it wrecks the Thanksgiving dinner. So what's the Lord doing here? You know, there's a proverb, a psalm. It says, a wise man draws out counsel like water in a deep well. There's a lot in that verse. What is the Lord doing? He took this, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, starts a conversation with her. She's gone from Jew to sir, and now she's asking questions of him. And uh, she's about to get saved, but one of the things when I say it's important witnessing chapter, I have a saying, there can be no conversion without conviction. You have to be convicted of sin. What does it say in John 6? The Holy Spirit was sent to do what? He had to comfort us, but before it can comfort us, what does it do? To convict the world of sin. So she's got to be convicted somehow. So what does the Lord do? She wants the water, so the Lord said, okay, go call your husband and have him come here. And the woman answered and said, well, I don't have a husband. And the Lord said to her, well, well, you said, well, I have no husband. You've had five of them. And the one whom you have right now is not your husband. You're just living with him. The Lord says, we have to go to Samaria. You see, I know ahead of time that there's a woman who's gone through five men in her life. She's devastated. By the way, she's collecting the water in the middle of the day. You don't do that. It was the hot, hottest time of the day. She's there by herself. Why? I'm just conjecture, but I think she had a reputation. I think she was ashamed. I think she was broken. And I think the Lord knew that, and he had an appointment. He said, we gotta go to Samaria. There's somebody up there that needs to be set free. But in order to be set free, she has to be broken first. Good place for an Amen. So how does the Lord break her? Nobody knew about five guys. Nobody, maybe one or two. Nobody knew that she was sleeping around. The Lord did. And she says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. By saying that, she's acknowledging, you're telling me things that nobody knows about. And only a prophet can do that. And now, you see, deep down in the heart of everybody who is not saved, don't you think they're really wondering if what we have is real? Don't you think they're wondering if, well, what if it is the truth? Isn't there many roads that lead to God or really is Jesus the only way? And that's deep, deep down. And the reason I like this as a witnessing tool is some Christians simply are not tactful. I don't know how to say it any other way. You know, repent or you're going to hell. That's pretty tactful, right? (laughs) Really warms up a person. But what is the Lord doing here? He's going from this to having this woman open up like a flower, where he's got her asking the questions. And now she's convicted. How do you know that? Nobody knows that. God might know that. Who are you? So now the deep question comes out that's been troubling her. 
Maybe you're here this morning, you've got deep questions, you don't think there's answers to them. Her question was, our fathers, she's a Samaritan, worship on this mountain. What was that mountain? Mount Gerizim. What happened on Mount Gerizim? Well, she was taught that's where the Garden of Eden was, that's where Noah's Ark landed, and that's where Abraham offered up Isaac. That's where we worship. He says, but you Jews, um, you say that Jerusalem is the place to worship. And she said, her question was simple. Which is it? I was brought up this way. And, um, but yet you Jews say, no, it's in Jerusalem. I want to know. Which is it? And the Lord's answer, neither one. <laughs> Not what she was expecting. No, the Lord goes on to say, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Your worship, what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, and the Father is seeking such to worship him. That tells me that there is a reason that God made you. Never wonder, what, why am I here? What's my purpose? And what am I supposed to do? Well, you're here because God created you. You are one of a kind. And your purpose is to know him in a personal way. You were created to know your creator. His nature, his character, and what he's done for you. And what he's done for you is paid the complete price so there's absolutely nothing that you can do or add to it except to say thank you. What we call worship. A true heartfelt expression of gratitude. What I like to call an attitude of gratitude. Realizing, Lord, if you wouldn't have done this, there's absolutely no way I could ever make it to heaven. You did it all. Now, when the Lord says he's looking for people to understand this, to come into this relationship with him, that's the reason for your being. So what can I do? What can I offer to the Lord? Well, I'll give you an Old Testament verse and a New Testament verse. Old Testament, Jeremiah 33. The voice of joy and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who say, Praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good. His mercy endures forever. Of those who will bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord, and I will cause the captives of the land to return as the first says the Lord. There's an Old Testament. The Lord brought them back from captivity. Interesting coincidence, Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those that had dreamed. Our mouth was filled with laughter and joy. They were happy. They were going home. New Testament, taking notes, Hebrews 13, verse 15. Therefore, because we really can't offer any works for our salvation, therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name question of the Samaritan woman. Where and how do you worship? Well, it's not in a place. It's not in a building. 
but it's what we do by ourselves, from our heart, and um, it's a sacrifice of praise. Being grateful and just thankful for what the Lord has done for us. Another good place for an amen. Gang, that's all you can do, is going around uh, thanking the Lord and just being grateful for all that he has done. And um, she, at this time, is really wondering and looking at the Lord like, verse 25 said, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming. And you think she's suspicious at this point? I do. Who is called Christ said, when he comes, he will tell us all things, and now the Lord tells her straight out, I who speak to you am he. And uh, she was suspicious, but the Lord just lays it right out. Guys, we gotta go to Samaria. I know we're not gonna be welcome there, but there's a woman who's bound up. She's been abused, gone through five marriages. She has lost touch with society. She's by herself at the well at high noon, hottest time of the day. But she's set free at this point. I believe she's saved and born again at this point because she left her water pot, goes back down into the town and says, you gotta come out and hear this man that told me things, um, who told me all things that ever I did. Could this be the Christ? Now I'm gonna leave it there and come back to it in just a little bit. Um, Let's go back. Jesus always spoke of Samaritan in the positive form. Turn with me to Luke chapter 17, and we will come back to this a little bit later. Luke chapter 17, draw your attention to verse 11 through 16. Another story about a Samaritan. Now it happened as he went into Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And he entered a certain village and there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, well, go show yourself to the priest. And so it was as they went that they were cleansed. Leprosy was not curable. And yet the law made provision for the healing of a leper in the law. And part of it is if you were healed, the priest would push you in quarantine, check you out, And if it really was a miracle, then he would declare you clean. So that's why Jesus said, go show yourself to the priest. Now one of them, when he saw that it was healed, returned with a loud voice, glorifying God, fell down on his face at his feet, and he gave thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So again, the Lord is choosing Samaritans to be the good guys. And so Jesus answered and said, were there not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Uh, Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. The Lord always putting the Samaritan 
in the positive. I'm not going to have you turn to John 8. It's a lengthy chapter. But it's the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And um, the penalty, of course, was stoning. The religious leaders said they caught her right in the act. And um, they interrupt his Bible study, throw her to the ground. I got two questions at this point. First question is, how did they know where to look? (laughs) Second question is, the law says you bring both of them. You see, it takes two to tangle, right? But they only brought the woman. The man should have been there too. So, the Lord being the Lord, says, okay, he who is without sin, you get to cast the first stone. He got down, started writing in in the ground, I believe he was writing the names of the guys that were, it was just a trap. They were trapping Jesus. He's, they, they say he's a friend of sinners. So here's a sinner. Let's see how he gets out of this one. And so he starts writing, and I think he's writing down the names and then looking up at the guys and calling him a liar. And then he writes down another name, adulterer. Look up at that guy. And it says from the oldest to the youngest, they took off. Gotta go. Remembered my wife wanted a quarterback. I gotta stop the story. See you guys later. And the Lord looks at the woman and says, where's your accusers? And she says, nobody's here, Lord. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and get six months worth of counseling and you should be fine after about that period of time. Is that what he said? No. Was he condoning her sin? No. She called him Lord. No man here, Lord? What happened during this whole thing? She got saved. And so as a result, no man here, Lord, um, where are your accusers? Go and sin no more. This is who you were. Don't do it anymore. It's that simple. And so he sets that woman free. And this caused the religious leaders to go after Jesus. They were being embarrassed at every turn. Every time they would try to trap him with mind games, he would turn the tables on them. And they finally had enough, and they accused him of having a demon. That's the only reason he could do these things. So if you're taking notes, John 8, verse 48 says, Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now that is the most, uh, lowest form of of uh, of uh, um, a derogatory statement as you can come up with. You're a Samaritan. You have a demon. Let's go back to Luke chapter ten and actually get into the the good Samaritan. It's not going to be as long as you think. We left off um, with the story of the good Samaritan. Uh, let's read it. He wanted, the lawyer wanted to justify himself and said, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered and said, well, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves, stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, departed leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down the road And when he saw him, he walked on the other side of the road. 
Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, always put in the proper light, a good light, as he sojourned, came near where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine, and set him on his animal, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, said to him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I'll pay. So which of these two? Now he's talking back to the lawyer. The question was, who is my neighbor? He said, which of the three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Dean Brown of Yale University has said that the three classes of men that represent three philosophies of life brought before us in this parable. First of all, the thief. His philosophy of, of life says, what you have is mine. This is socialism or communism. The priests and the Levites, their philosophy of life says, what I have is mine. This is rugged individualism that has gone to seed. His cry is, let the world be damned and I'll get mine. This is godless capitalism. Nothing wrong with capitalism as long as it's not godless. The third one is a good Samaritan. His philosophy says, what I have belongs to you. This is a Christian philosophy of life. Can I read that again? This is a Christian philosophy of life. What I have is yours if I can help you. Folks who talk about Christian socialism don't recognize that there are two distinct philosophies. Jesus is answering the lawyer's questions about uh, real love. Loving God and then loving your neighbor is actually proof, proof indeed that you are a Christian. When you see someone in need and it's within your power to do something about it, you've just proved to yourself that you're a Christian because we're told to love our neighbor as ourselves. Do you realize how much you love yourself? (laughs) You love yourself a lot. I always like to use the illustration, whenever there's a group picture, and you look at the group picture, who's the first person you look at? (laughs) We can all confess. You know, we're interested in ourselves. But now we're told that the person that, like the Good Samaritan, has compassion. Why? Mostly because I've been there. I've been in that woman's shoes, Samaritan shoes. I know what it feels like to be down. And now I know what it feels like to be set free. And I'm simply grateful. And I'm trying to express my gratitude by showing this love to other people whether they think they need it or not. Oh, they need it. They just don't know they need it yet. That's why most people have to go through uh, traumatic experiences. 
So what Matthew adds, uh, Luke, the, the last thing in Luke 28, Jesus uh, says, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. If you're taking notes, that's not the last thing it says in the same account in Matthew 22, verse 40. It adds this instead. On loving God and loving your neighbor, in verse 40 it says, on these two commandments hang the law and the prophets. What? Love. Loving God and loving your neighbor. On it, all the law and the prophets hang upon it. 1 John 3.17, but whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, well, how does the love of God abide in him? This is a litmus test for Christianity, gang. You see a person who has a need. It's within your ability to do something about it. And if you don't, the question is, how does the love of God abide in you? In men's prayer yesterday, we were just going around sharing. One of the guys was on vacation, ran into a couple, they had run out of gas, and, um, and they're just standing around, so he goes up, and I don't know the full story, but basically he, he saw the need, and it wasn't a big deal for him to fill up the gas tank, so he does. And, um, you know, I don't necessarily know if he, they witnessed to him or, or anything, but he was just being a good Samaritan. He saw the deed. He had the 20 bucks or whatever it took to fill up the gas tank, and so he did it. It should be um, the natural response when it's in our power to do something and to do it. Not only that, Paul actually writes a doctorate about it in Romans chapter 13, which I'm going to have you turn to right now. Romans 13, just three verses, 8 through 10. Romans 13, 8 says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. What did we read? In Matthew 22, 40, on these two commandments hang the law and the prophets. Now Paul is saying the same thing. He who loves has fulfilled the law. How so? Well, he lifts off the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. How so? Love does no harm to your neighbor. Therefore, love is a fulfillment of the law. You see, if you really, truly love your neighbor, do you think you're gonna slander him behind his back? You think you're gonna steal, thou shalt not steal? You're gonna sneak over in the middle of the night and steal his lawnmower? (laughs) No, why not? I love the guy. He's my neighbor. And I'm not gonna try to rip him off or have an affair with his wife or speak evil about him. Why? You see, when you love, the law automatically is taken care of. You simply don't do those things. Turn to Jude, last book before the book of Revelation, just two verses, verses um, 20 to 22. Talking 
he's talking mostly about false prophets, but then he begins to talk about you and I. He says, but you brethren, verse 20, but you, Christian, building yourself up in the most holy faith, praying always in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction. A distinction. You know, the Bible speaks against being a respecter of persons. God says he's a respecter of no persons. He looks at the rich man the same way he looks at a poor man. Now, during my generation, um, in Jesus' day, the ones that were despised and rejected were the Samaritans. Um, and the Lord had compassion and healed the leopard, set the woman's free at, at Jacob's well. Uh, in my generation, the Samaritans um, were called hippies. <laughs> and I'm a product of the Jesus movement. Uh, Chuck, honestly, um, when he tells his story, he says he despised him. He says they need to get a haircut, get a job, and clean himself up. That was Pastor Chuck's um, assessment of hippies. Kay, on the other hand, was brokenhearted. She would go down to Huntington Beach, and she'd see him all strung out on drugs, and um, her heart went out for him. And she made Chuck go with him one day. And tears came to her eyes because they were looking for peace and love and they weren't finding it. And she knew she had it. So she got her daughter to bring home a hippie one night because <laughs> Janet, the oldest daughter, knew a hippie. And he brought him home and um, he got saved. His name was Lonnie Frisbee. And um, long story short, um, the Jesus movement started, started in a tent. We just had Chuck Gerard here with us. He was a big part of that. And they were welcome. They were the Samaritans of my generation, hippies. Well, they outgrew the tent, so now they had to build a building. So here's this new, beautiful building. And the hippies are still coming in. And they just put in nice new carpet, new pews, really, really nice. But the hippies were coming in and they didn't have any shoes on and her feet were still dirty. And some of the board members said, you can't come in here. Not with those dirty feet. And so the, some of the board members weren't letting the hippies come in because it was messing up their brand new carpet that they had just put down. Well, the word got back to Chuck. And um, he said, I hear we have a problem with uh, carpet and no shoes. He says, I have a solution for the problem. And here it is. We're going to rip out the carpet. I'm, this is a true story. We're going to rip out the carpet and uh, they can come in any way they want to. And it's the Lord's job to do a work in them. They're justified now just as though they never sinned. God will work with them. He'll change them over time. But that's the Lord's job. Our job is to teach them the word of God just as they are. The Samaritans of my generation were hippies. I look at the world today and I see a lot of street people. 
Um, a lot of it not of their own doing. They've just fallen apart in hard times. And a lot of them are sleeping under bridges. A lot of them have no place to go. Between the first service and the second service, I had somebody call me aside and said, Dwight, I'm going to tell you this. I'm not going to tell you the guy's name because he doesn't want to lose his reward. And he said, the Lord, um, there's this couple that just got saved. Um, She was being trafficked as a prostitute. And... um, but had gotten saved, gotten married to the guy, and he said, the Lord just had this couple on my heart, and um, I thought I was supposed to send him some money, so I was gonna send him 20 bucks. And I went out to get the 20 bucks, and the Lord says, no, not 20, add a zero, make it 200. (laughs) And he says, Lord, that is really stretching my budget right now, the 200. And so he does, does it anyway. So a week goes by, and a week later, uh, they, this person gets a card, and the card said, thank you, thank you, thank you. You, you just don't know. Uh, my husband and I are just getting back at our feet. Kitchen sink doesn't work. So we decided we're either going to have the kitchen sink fixed or food, but it had to get fixed for water, so we had to get it fixed. Oh, by the way, do you know how much it costs to get the kitchen sink completely fixed? You guessed it, exactly $200. And that was, that was just the Lord. And somebody who had it within his power, when he heard of the need, they just went and did it. And, um, you know, this girl had a reputation too. She was being used and being trafficked around, but now her life is back with the Lord and they're doing fine. Uh, this person told me they're plugged in to a Calvary Chapel. I can't tell you what state because I don't want to give out any more information. <laughs> Let's close by looking at John chapter four. It says, on some have compassion. What does that mean to you? Well, it's easy to show compassion upon people who are compassionate. It's another thing to show compassion on what we would call people of questionable or undesirable character, like a Samaritan or a street person or a hippie. I don't think there's any more hippies. Maybe there is, but if there are, I don't know where they are. (laughs) And somebody's thinking, Dwight, you're one, you're standing behind a pulpit. (laughs) John 4, I want to close the study by pointing out to you a very famous missionary verse that missionaries use around the world. It's verse 35. Do not say that there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. And both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For this is the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have not entered into their labor. I don't know a missionary organization that doesn't quote this. I want to point out where it was quoted from. Where is this being said? Answer, Samaria. 
When Jesus looked out over the fields, he was looking over Samaria, the despised people of the Jewish people. And he's telling his disciples, there's the harvest right there, Samaria. And he said, that's where I want you to go. Um, They may not hear it. I told the the first service that, um, um, you know, you're always looking for your opportunity to see if you can witness. Well, I had witnessed, I had started witnessing to this guy. The guy said, stop. And I said, what for? He said, you're the fourth guy in four days to tell me about Jesus. So the Bible says some sow, some water, and some reap. Well, for four days in a row, this guy had been hounded by the Lord. Some was sowing, some were watering, and I got to be the fourth guy. And he says, There's this, this has got to be the Lord. The guy gave his heart to the Lord. But it was after the fourth time. He finally got it. He says, this is the coincidence. Um, you're the fourth guy that's told me this in four days, so there's something going on here. What does the Lord say? I've sent you where others have labored, others have labored, and you've entered into their labor. So that gets chalked up to Dwight's account, but after it, there's three other people that are all part of that account, and we all get to share in that together. Amen? Good place to end the study? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. As we consider that you have compassion when people in our world are respecter of people, they put us in different classes and choose to associate with us if we're wealthy or if we're famous or if we're popular, any of the above. But too often, Lord, we see that your word is reaching out to those that are the Samaritans, the despised. And Lord, you go out of the way to make the Samaritans in the word of God the ones that are doing it right, like the good Samaritan who had compassion. Lord, help us leave this morning realizing that if if it is within our power as a Christian and your spirit is leading us, to be quick to respond and help and thereby proving indeed that the love of Christ really does dwell in us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Passion. When people in our world are respecter of people, they put us in different classes and choose to associate with us if we're wealthy or with, if we're famous or if we're popular, any of the above. But too often, Lord, we see that your word is reaching out to those that are the Samaritans, the despised. And Lord, you go out of the way to make the Samaritans in the word of God the ones that are doing it right like the good Samaritan who had compassion. Lord, help us leave this morning realizing that if if it is within our power as a Christian and your spirit is leading us to be quick to respond and help and thereby proving indeed that the love of Christ really does dwell in us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.